This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, let's get moving. Yesterday, six people were killed, uh, many more injured in an attack on a mosque in Quebec City. The incident being treated as an act of terrorism. Two men have been arrested, uh, although at this point, we don't know a lot of information. To talk more on all of this, David Hyde, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates, and he is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Uh, David, this has been a very odd weekend. As a security person, what are your thoughts over everything that's transpired, starting with Donald Trump's ban and as we move into what happened last night? Yeah, I mean, it obviously, Scott, it's difficult to know whether there may be any kind of connection between these these two. I mean, it's possible. It's too early to tell. Um, but obviously, uh, we have the Quebec incident that's just a tragic, horrible uh, mass shooting that obviously we'll learn more about as the day progresses, but obviously a targeting of um, a house of worship, um, a mosque. And then uh, the Trump ban there, of course, um, Again, it's how you feel on the right, how you feel on the left, Scott, which, you know, but the reality is this is, this is very controversial. This is something that impacted real people. This is something that was very, very poorly thought through, very, very poorly implemented. And, you know, so all the way around, it couldn't really have gone much worse, um, you know, in terms of how, how, it, how it rolled out. The only thing you can say is for the people that voted for Donald Trump, he said this is what he was going to do. Um, I think those um, in the States assumed and elsewhere that he would do so with some calculus. He would do so having availed the uh, um, various agencies involved, Scott, so they knew not to let people board planes from certain parts of the world. They knew that what the rules and, uh, would be, and there wouldn't be these kind of arbitrary detentions of people that have now led to all these lawsuits, Scott. Uh, he said uh, something along the lines of they couldn't have given any sort of um, ma- mass warning for this sort of thing that it would have triggered, uh, I guess, an influx of people prior to all of this. What are your thoughts on all of that? Uh, this is that's just asinine. You know, I, I mean, uh, just to be blunt, Scott, I mean, the, the, you know, we're talking about immigration policy here. And, you know, there's a difference between an imminent terrorist attack where you you know, you may have to move very quickly and you might do and not do certain things to avoid making it worse. This is not that. You know, I, I don't know many terrorists or terrorist-leaning individuals who would have had all their paperwork ready, all manner of things lined up, and might have left a day earlier if they'd found out, hmm. number one. Number two, it's not as though this needed to be publicized uh, to the public at large, but who needed to be prepared for this, Scott, was the Department of Homeland Security, the TSA, the airlines. Like, there are certain groups that actually deal with these people, um, with people coming from other countries into the States. And these are the people that needed to be told, so that they knew, um, you know, e- even if it had to be that there would be some people arriving that had to be questioned or had to be dealt with differently now under this executive order, that should all have been ready to minimize the intrusion on these people's lives. What, what didn't happen here, Scott, was, um, there was really there was no pre-planning. It was almost as though the two arms of the government there were completely disconnected. It was as though they're different countries almost. Mm. And um, the, the uh, Trump uh, White House team made decisions uh, with respect to green cards, made decisions with re- that would uh, impact hundreds of thousands of people without even really talking to or briefing Homeland Security and the other departments that, that need to actually implement and, and deal with the people under these, the, this executive order. So it really beggars belief how this could have been so badly botched, Scott, to be honest. 
It kind of reminds me of a, an intersection, pick any intersection in New York City, the busiest of intersections, and just a traffic cop going out into the center and just stopping everything. And no real plan, no real um, thought as to what happens when you, when you pinch this garden hose. Well, that's it. And, and you, know, it's, 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 uh, <clears throat> you know, it affects everybody and everything. And, and, it, and, and sometimes, like I said, if there is an imminent attack, a, a terrorist-type attack that's about to take place, and you need to cut off access to a certain area or shut down a transit system, even, for example, and, of course, that would be a huge impact, Scott, but you start to think about scale and proportionality. Here, there was no imminent threat. Many, many, I mean, we, we can argue separately the case of whether this travel ban, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, is actually going to do anything to prevent uh, terrorist acts. That's my next question. This is a minimum of 90 days, depending on the scenario. What are we going to find out in that period of time? What will happen then? Well, we're going to find out very little. Essentially, Scott, what this is, in, I think, intended to do is give the government some time to improve the screening methods that they're deploying, right? And in the meantime, I believe this is a political move. Yeah. You know, I, I don't see, as a security professional that studies these areas, I don't see a lot of veracity, empirical evidence to suggest that there is any issue with um, violence from refugees in the States. There's a, you know, I think there's no history there at all in terms of terrorist-type incidents. There, there is a bit in, in Europe. So I'm not saying it's a non-issue, Scott, um, but I am saying that I think this is a sledgehammer t taken out to deal with the fly. And I think that the fly here is how do we better screen individuals under certain types of importations into the country or visas or allowing entry? Because as we saw with the San Bernardino case, the wife of the, of the, um, the main uh, murderer there, she was able to get into the U.S., uh, on a spousal-type visa, and it looks like there was all manner of things were missed. So absolutely there are areas that need to be adjusted here. But you don't need to stem the flow of refugees or of, or of people coming into the country from these you know, areas where there's already extreme vetting in place. So it really is, I think, um, a kind of a, 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 a solution that's in, in search of a problem, frankly. Uh, obviously, the, the terrorist attack uh, in Quebec City on the mosque, suspects, two suspects in custody. Uh, do you find it odd that one person obviously seemed to surrender? What do we know about this? Scott, this is a very unusual um, situation. I mean, I, I tracked this unfold on social media. I happened to be on my computer last night when everything went down. And, I mean, I was watching fake news. I mean, there was, first of all, a group that pretended to be Reuters that came out naming two supposed white supremacists that were the perpetrators. And some mainstream media, not, not in Canada mainly, but in the States, a few um, groups pulled that up and started to run with that. Then there was a report later on that it was actually two Syrian refugees that had committed this act, and that started to take legs. So it was really almost uh, of another world to watch how these media narratives played out. And, and what we know here is... In any part of Canada, Quebec's going to be the quietest and, and the least information flowing in this kind of inc incident because in Quebec, they don't name suspects until they're charged. That's a very well-known part of the mm. approach that the Quebec uh, law enforcement um, and Crown take to these issues. So I knew, and many people who work in the fields that I do, we knew we weren't going to get names, probably until later on today, to confirm names. But at the same time, um, it was quite disconcerting to see 
the, the, the extremes trying to grab a narrative and run with it. Mm. But Scott, on this real quickly, what we know is that we know that there are two people that have been arrested. We don't, by the way, know that both these two people were shooters. We don't know exactly what they both did. We, we don't know if they're both suspects, frankly. Yeah. So, uh, of course, they've been arrested. They likely were working together. But there are things that we don't know yet. Um, you know, there are conflicting stories about what they may have yelled at the time of the attack. This is an attack on uh, Muslims in in a mosque. So, you know, I mean, it just, you start to think what it might be, but until we actually have the evidence, there are many other narratives, Scott, that could fit in here uh, that wouldn't be just right-wing extremists going to attack a mosque. So I'm very, very hesitant about making any kind of a assumption here until we know more. So obviously we don't know if uh, this uh, attack that happened yesterday was any way linked to announcements or things that had been said over the weekend in the United States. Yeah, I mean, obviously at this stage, Scott, we don't. But I believe that we're going to get more on that. Because what we do know from the press conference this morning is that the police are, have got a number of cyber computing and IT experts working on this file, like dozens of them, frankly, across multiple police forces, federal, provincial, and, and, uh, and, and municipal. And they are looking at every piece of evidence that's going to tie into these two social media. They've already um, are talking to family or friends or people that know these two individuals. Um, they're, in, they're being interviewed right now. Um, we know that uh, you know, the net's going to be cast very wide. It, it, it appears they may have been students at a university in the area. It's possible. Again, not confirmed, Scott. But if that is the case, there'd be inquiries at the university with respect to even the counseling people and the people. I mean, um, the counseling department in, in a big university like this is often, uh, frankly, fertile ground for law enforcement to find out what kind of troubles one of these individuals may have had, if indeed they, they were going to this institution, Scott. So there's many, many avenues. But I believe that as we track this back now over the next few days to a week, we will find out more about the ideology of these individuals who pulled the trigger. We'll find out the, the pronouncements, and we may well find out the motivations. And it could be that there's a link in to what they've been, the rhetoric that's been coming out of the states. But certainly, it'd be far premature to draw any of those associations, Scott, right now. Does the situations and what we've seen over the course of the weekend, how does it create fear? How does it change things? It just feels different today, David. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think really it's what, it, what it, I believe it is, Scott, is that you expect your government to, whether you are a left-leaning person or right-leaning person, and I'm, I'm taking out the fringe and the extremes here because you can't talk to those people on either side, but the majority of us um, expect some stability from the government. Even if you didn't like Obama, you knew he was a careful, calculating kind of guy. He might not like his politics. You might not agree with his positions, but he wasn't going to shoot from the hip. He wasn't going to put things in jeopardy. He wasn't going to take major risks. The thing that's changed now, while many people are um, you know, refreshed by Trump's rhetoric and his shoot-from-the-hip style, and, and, and there, there are certainly some attractive elements of that, the problem is that when you try to bring that into the political arena and when you are now responsible for, it's not just the government, but Trump and his administration are responsible for the culture within the U.S. in terms of the feelings of people. 
people's comfort, people's certainty about their government, people's certainty about their safety and security. So when you have the kind of things happening that we've had now, what we have is that there are certain portions of the population, Scott, and those who, who commiserate with them, start to feel as wonder whether their rights are going to be protected, whether their family is going to be able to stay with them. And I'm now referring to Muslims primarily in the United States. And, so, and there, of course, are many people that um, you know, understand and, 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 and support um, Muslims in this. So it's not just the Muslim faith, but people start to feel unnerved. And it starts here. Where will it go to next? Might it go to other types of visible minorities? Could it be gender inequality? So, of course, we, I'm not trying to hyperventilate here, Scott. I, I'm not saying that this is, um, you know, more than it is. But this starts to make people feel unnerved with this kind of sanity and the certainty and the calculated actions of their government. And if this is where it starts in the first week of this presidency, where does it end? Where, where are we going? Mm-hmm. And this is the uncertainty, I believe, that some people feel in the States and that I believe is, is also going across to other countries also. Uh, Pr- uh, Prime Minister Trudeau called this a terrorist attack. Has anyone from any terrorism organization claimed responsibility for uh, what happened in Quebec City? Uh, what, what makes him uh, declare that, that it, in fact it was? Yeah, I mean, certainly when, there's been no reporting of any claims of any sort, and the investigation is still in a fairly early stage. But, Scott, this, this would appear on its merits to meet the definition of terrorism. And the definition, that definition is, is a little bit um, in debate down to its fine points. But, the, but the, to, to, to boil it down to an easy line, Scott, it really is violence that's perpetrated for a political end or an ideological end. Mm-hmm. So someone who has an issue motivation, be it religious, be it political, be it a gender-type issue or a human rights-type issue, anti-abortion, etc., call it that, or, or very extreme views, and they would threaten or use violence to actually achieve their end, to push that political narrative or that, that ideological narrative, that would meet the definition of terrorism. Now, it remains to be seen, though, Scott, what kind of terrorism it might be. Mm. There are many different types of terrorism that um, are more and less uh, common in a country like Canada and elsewhere. So we have a history in this country, and Quebec has a history, as you know, Scott, of terrorism acts in the past. Obviously, nothing like this. But again, we need to be careful to jump out ahead of this and jump onto those familiar Islamophobia narratives or onto the anti-Trump narrative or onto the right-left narrative, I think we need to be very careful because this is quite a delicate time with things happening in the U.S. And I really would hate to see people's emotions inflamed by a lot of false news or, you know, rushing to kind of judgments and positions on this before we know the information. There may be, Scott, a surprise or two that comes out of the investigation in the next one to two days. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates. As always, David, thanks for your expertise. Much appreciated. Thank you. My my pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Of course, what started off with a uh, a bizarre weekend and and late Friday, uh, Donald Trump announcing a temporary ban on Muslims uh, entering the country for 90 days. 
Not sure what that is going to accomplish after 90 days. And then, of course, uh, ending the weekend off with this uh, tragedy coming out of Quebec City. It has been a bizarre weekend, to say the least. Let's bring in Raheel Raz, a Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, public speaker, media consultant, anti-racism activist, and with us now. Hello, Raheel. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for show. thank you for taking the time, Raheel. Uh, you know, today I just don't know what to say. I, I I don't know what to react. What are your thoughts when you see what has happened over the course of the weekend, starting with the situation in the United States and then moving to what's happened in Quebec City? Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say as a Canadian that what has happened in Quebec City is extremely tragic and unfortunate. And our hearts and thoughts go out to the families of the victims. Uh, you know, this is something that is so unacceptable. Um, at the same time, when I speak of what's happening to the south of us, I'm not sure that there is a connection between the two, and we don't know that yet. So, uh, you know, there's already too much hysteria going on. There are knee-jerk reactions, name-calling, labels. Uh, we live in a democracy. People have a right, uh, you know, to elect a president, and they have a like right to protest, of course. But I think that um, somewhere along the line, uh, we have lost the balance in the conversation, uh, you know, the reason and the logic. And it's important to take a deep breath and step back and, uh, you know, look at this um, uh, properly and not uh, have uh, such a knee-jerk reaction to people who support or don't support. Um, you know, the the executive order, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is something which is uh, for the safety and security of the country. And every leader, uh, every president has the right to implement um, uh, programs that are for the safety and security of their land. So, um, you know, if we want to, to look at what other leaders have done, perhaps we can look at the previous ad- administration. Uh, President Obama embraced the drone program, and during his presidency, there were 563 strikes in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen, in which, according to one report, almost 800 civilians were killed. Uh, President Trump is not calling for killing of people. He's not even calling for a ban on all Muslims. You know, he's not politically correct. He's not afraid to say what he thinks, uh, as you know very well. If he wanted a complete ban on Muslims, he would have said this is a complete ban on Muslims. He's calling for a stoppage for 30 days or 90 days, three months, uh, which is a good time to sort out whatever internal issues, whatever problems with security and safety there exist. And it may not be a bad thing. In fact, I think that... uh, Muslims should support this. They should work on this issue of saying, okay, let's see how we can make this country better, how we can uh, address the issue of a radical jihadist ideology. And that is something that exists not because I say so, but because it's out there. And it's a, a point that the previous administration would not even articulate, leave alone, put any um, tools into place to address the issue. Fascinating, Raheel. Uh, I think a lot of people are surprised by your reaction. So you don't necessarily think this is a bad thing? Do you think it's a good thing? I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. You know, I don't make any definitive statements on this because this is a work in progress. President Trump is a work in progress. So was this too much of a work in progress, like a bull in a China shop too, too hard? We wait and watch, but on this particular issue 
of addressing the radical jihadist ideology, I am very much uh, there in support because, excuse me, <coughs> I'm so sorry. It's okay. Um, I am, um, I think it's a good thing because, as I said, this is causing terror within our countries. It's happened in Canada. It has happened to the south of us. Uh, innocent lives have been taken. So if uh, a, a ban or if this temporary moratorium is going to help uh, strengthen the borders of the country, uh, then why not? And, you know, we tend to have such a tunnel vision focus. We don't look at other countries of the world. Every country of the world takes measures to... Uh, strengthen their borders to keep out people. Sixteen Muslim countries don't allow allow Jews or Israelis to enter their country. We never see demonstrations on the street about that. Uh, people have killed in the name of my faith. Terrorists have killed innocent people. The same number of people didn't come out when in Syria Assad was slaughtering his own people, when Saddam was slaughtering, slaughtering his own people and the Kurds. So you know, the double standards are a little confusing. Uh, yes, it's very good to live in a democracy and have an opinion and speak out, but let's keep the balance uh, of human rights, which uh, don't exist in many of the countries that the temporary ban has been implemented on. And this, uh, the number of countries or the names of the countries, by the way, were uh, suggested by President Obama. Uh, originally. Uh, that being said, any attacks that have happened in the United States, uh, not people uh, from these countries, uh, is this an overreaction as far as a blanket statement in order, uh, you know, to gain political points? Or, as you've suggested, is is it time that the world needs uh, a leader with an iron fist that says, hey, we've got to stop this and we've got to get a, a handle on what is going on. But some would still say that this reaction over the weekend was, was way too over the top. No? Of course people will say that. And, you know, many people do think it's over the top. But I personally think as someone who has been out in the field fighting radical Islamist ideology for the last 20 years, I have been looking for a, we have been looking for a leader who will actually say what we have been saying and support our battle for the soul of Islam. It's uh, something that needs to be done, and unfortunately, it comes with its pain. It comes with its uh, problems. You know, everything is not perfect when you're trying to deal with something that has been implemented for the last eight years to the point where the extremists became so confident uh, that they were being appeased that, you know, they continued with their attacks. So I know that uh, this is considered a viral reaction by many people, a very strong reaction. But perhaps that is what we need. You know, we can't say for sure. You know, I'm not a visionary where I can say that this is the best thing that could ever happen. However, under the circumstances, it's not a bad thing. Um, it's something that needed to be done, and it's painful. You know, it's like pulling out a... a uh, a wound that has been festering for so long that it has become really disgusting. Pulling it out is painful. What would be the next step then? How do you move past this? What happens in I 90, think in 90 days? The next would be that uh, we would hope that uh, President Trump will actually call for a commission on which he will have 
reform-minded, progressive, liberal Muslims who are loyal to the countries in which we live and that we will sit around and strategize because there has never been a formal strategy on how to fight the jihadist ideology, which is very different from uh, terrorism. You know, terrorism is only a byproduct, byproduct of an ideology that has been promoted for almost 40 years now. So it's pretty well embedded. And for those of us who have been working in this field, we know how uh, how evil it is. Um, we hope that he will ban the Muslim Brotherhood uh, and its organizations that actually promote a victim ideology amongst Muslims. And most importantly, I hope that Muslims will come together, American Muslims, Canadian Muslims, will actually start having a really much-needed dialogue about how we can be part of the solution, how we can help uh, you know, clear up some of this, this mucky stuff that has uh, existed for the last uh, so many years and how, how we can actually uh, put out our hand and say, okay, let's do this together. Uh, let's do this as citizens of a country uh, which we call home and let's do this for the future of our children and our grandchildren, which is why I do this work. Why, uh, what response are you getting? What feedback are you getting for your response to this issue? May, many, thought, many may think that this was not uh, the position that you would take. What yes, is the response? That's true, been? and they can uh, think away. <laughs> they have the freedom. <laughs> have I you heard? Have you heard? As I said, I'm used to labeling and name calling. This is nothing new for me. You know, I've always gone against the status quo. I'm not here to be popular. You know, um, somewhat like Mr. Trump, I say what I think. I'm not politically correct, but I look at the bigger picture and I'm looking at this future safety and security of our country. And I hope, actually, that our own prime minister and Canada will also take notice and also implement some uh, features about the kind of funding that is coming into our country from these terror-producing countries, about, uh, you know, this motion of Islamophobia, which actually suppresses free speech. Let's not forget that it is the frustration of those people who see what is happening but are muzzled from addressing it. Every citizen of every country has the right to question if there are people who are harming the country. They have a right to question an ideology that is uh, problematic. They have a right to question the safety and security of their country. They should never be called bigots or racists or Islamophobes. But unfortunately, in Canada, we have this problem. So people shut up, and that then is frustrating and it bubbles up and it mm. breaks open in a sometimes very, very negative manner. What about the response of countries like Germany or France or even the message that Prime Minister Trudeau tweeted? Well, yeah, they have a right to say whatever they want. But Germany and France, excuse me, look at what is happening in Europe. It's looking at Europe uh, where I was a couple of months ago. And, uh, and I thought, I hope this never happens to our country. Europe is so dark in terms of what is happening there. And it is exactly because of political correctness, not allowing people to address their fears, not dealing with the issue. And the government, of course, is culpable in this as well. You know, it's not just the blame on the extremists. It's those are people who have looked the other way when the extremists are promoting their subversive agendas. So all of us, civil society, Muslims, non-Muslims, government, together, we need to be having this important conversation. But what are we doing? We are name-calling. But is Donald Trump that. having that conversation, Raheel, or is he just stopping all of it? You know, that's it. I no think more... that he is open to conversation. Yeah. And I'm hoping, as I said, it's only the first few days. Mm -hmm. We are waiting and watching. Uh, we don't know what will happen, but we, would, we have put out feelers, and we are hoping that he will have that conversation. And if he 
knows what's good for him and what's good for the country. And if he wants to make a reasonable decision, then I think he will uh, reach out. I don't think he's worried about popularity. He is beyond that. Mm -hmm. But he certainly um, knows that there are people who are willing to work with him and who are willing to, uh, you know, have that conversation. So we hope that he will set up a commission in which there will be some strategies uh, that were never there for the last eight years. In fact, they couldn't even articulate the problem, leave alone deal with it. Uh, And then we start talking about how to solve the problem. And, of course, lots of people along the way are not going to be happy. But, uh, you know, is the deaths of innocent people in our country more important or popularity or, uh, you know, always being right? I don't know if I'm completely right, but, you know, this is what I feel. Oh. Uh, we're just about to end anyway. Uh, we'll leave Rahil Raza there, Muslim-Canadian journalist, author, and, of course, anti-racism activist and interfaith discussion leader. Rahil uh, Raza, Muslim-Canadian journalist, very surprised uh, by Rahil's reaction there. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. President Trump has issued an executive order for an immigration ban. Uh, This has left people stuck inside the United States or outside the country. Protests have erupted in response. Uh, As we've mentioned, is this tough on immigration uh, policy the right way to go? Dr. Anthony Neal is with us, Department of Political Science, Buffalo State College, and he is with us now. Hello, Dr. Anthony Neal. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. What is your thoughts on what has transpired over the course of the weekend? Well, my thoughts, honestly, is uh, total chaos. and uh, is, uh, It seems like it's a basic breakdown in the system, and it's having uh, repercussions throughout the whole world. Did you see this coming? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, lots are saying, hey, this is what he promised. Um, did, did anyone see this coming? Well, we know this is what he promised, but apparently no one thought about the repercussions of what he promised if he tried to implement the, the, uh, these ideas or put these ideas into practice. So it's easy to say this is what he promised, but of course uh, no one really thought about the repercussions or what, what comes after a promise is kept. Uh, simply saying a promise is kept, it sounds good, but uh, it's not necessarily a good thing in and of itself. How is this playing out in the United States? How divisive an issue is this? Well, it's still a divisive issue. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that many uh, of uh, those elected officials who have come to be on the side of, of President Trump, particularly Republicans, are seem to be in somewhat a state of denial or trying to find a way to justify it or trying to find a way to soft-pedal it. Uh, where, on the other hand, uh, Democrats are coming out quite quite forcefully uh, in opposition. And I don't think it's simply based on sadness regarding uh, you know, the outcome of the election. I think this is a truly concern for the well-being of the nation. For example, here in New York State, Senator Schumer, when he went on TV, actually cried. I don't think those were fake tears. I think that was genuine concern for the people being affected and general, general concern, genuine concern for uh, the nation as a whole. 
Uh, we had a, uh, a lady by the name of Raheel Raza on prior to this discussion. She's a Muslim-Canadian journalist, been here for 25 years. Uh, she didn't necessarily condemn what Donald Trump has done and said that it's time for a strong hand and time to bring, uh, you know, a consensus together and have the tough discussions with people from these communities about what is really going on void of political correctness. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think people who use the term political correctness, they try to use that term to hide a multitude of faults, and I think it's time to get over it, get past it, and look at what's truly going on. Uh, the problem with the uh, order that uh, President Trump issued is uh, he's functioning as if he's the first president of the United States ever, as if no one has ever dealt with these issues before. Hmm. We've had vetting processes, for example, in terms of immigration. This is long before Trump came, uh, came on the scene. So he's not inventing anything new. As a matter of fact, those who look at this particular area say that we've had relatively good vetting in terms of individuals coming into the United States and wanted just how much more strict could it be. I think this is simply... Uh, if I, I'm inclined to call it, is is a Muslim ban. And I think it flies in the face of our Constitution and it flies in the face of the values that we've tried to set forth. Uh, Dr. Anthony Neal is with us, Department of Political Science, Buffalo State College. Uh, doctor, what happens after 90 days, after this temporary ban is over? What's the solution then? How do you move forward? Well, the, the problem with this administration is is that is no one knows, to be honest. Uh, it could be extended. It could come to an end. But one thing we do know is that the harm to the United States has already been done. So what can we do to repair the harm to the United States? I think that's uh, a long-term question. The short-term question is how can, if we can do anything uh, within the courts, but Congress can muster enough courage to try to override this executive order. What do you think we'll be talking about by the end of this week? Well, I know that uh, President Trump says he's going to offer his Supreme Court uh, nominee uh, tomorrow night, and I think that will be a topic of discussion. Uh, in the short term, it doesn't seem like uh, anything significant is going to be done with the ban. I know there have been federal court rulings uh, in terms of a stay in different jurisdictions, but whether or not that solves the national question will be left up to to see what the Supreme Court can do or what the Supreme Court does. So the issue of the ban, I think, will still be a topic of discussion by the end of the week, in addition to uh, what pres- the, the individual that President Trump wants to nominate for the Supreme Court. What, how is Donald Trump responding to uh, the protest and what's happened at the airports in the United States over the course of the weekend and the people that have sort of had their lives put on hold and were, were caught in limbo in all of this? What's his response to some of the blowback he's been getting? Well, his response is, it has the same way its response has always been to essentially uh, blame the victim, uh, essentially blame the media, say that the media uh, are the ones acting in a hysterical manner based on what has transpired and that the media are getting the wrong information out to the people. Uh, 
as, as opposed to owning up to a, a major mistake or major faux pas uh, in his administration, he tends to shift the blame to others. Uh, do you think that uh, there was another way of doing this? Should he have uh, obviously consulted with some of these other departments before throwing you know, a stick into the spokes of the immigration wheel? Uh, he has come out and said that he couldn't give any sort of warning for this because this would have started a mass influx of people uh, prior to that date. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's another alternative fact that the president loves to dwell on <laughs> or operate in. I don't think that would be the case. For example, if you if you want to take a review of a policy that's already in place, the first thing you do is ask those who are over that area to do a study, to send you papers, information, to review where can it be improved, uh, where are the loopholes in the area. You don't simply put out a blanket declaration that no one knows about and then try to enforce it over a weekend. Uh, and we see what, how that results in, in absolute chaos. And I think if a president can't look out at his own nation and see that his own nation is in chaos, then perhaps that person should not be sitting in the office of president. How much of this do you think is based in policy? How much of it is him just looking for his daily news bite? It, it, it just seems that, um, you know, it's more about the bark than the bite at this point. Well, as, as you look at some of the uh, previous executive orders, many have argued that it's a lot of show, particularly the way uh, he signed them and then would hold them up to the camera to see yeah. what I'm doing and give the idea that something is being accomplished when nothing is really being accomplished at all. The only thing here that's truly being accomplished, in, in, in my viewpoint, is uh, the destabilization of, of the United States. How destable is it? Uh, what has it been like over the weekend? And, and again, um, how does he answer that? Well, in my way of looking at it, this has been a political equivalent of 9-11. Hmm. After 9-11 happened, I was bereft of words to speak uh, in terms of uh, the destruction that, that uh, happened there. And this weekend, I, I'm sitting, watching, viewing things, and I can't believe what's unfolding before my very eyes. So for me, it's the political equivalent of 9-11. From a legal standpoint, where is this going? I mean, obviously, it's being challenged. Uh, what will come of all of this, do you think? It's quite interesting. As you know, uh, our Supreme Court is... Uh, 4-4 at the moment uh, because uh, the Republicans decided not to allow President Obama to have his nominee uh, selected for the Supreme Court to offer a hearing. So therefore, we're in a 4-4 split. Uh, so it, it's uncertain as how the court would rule if it's a straight liberal conservative split, then it's possible that uh, a lower court decision could stand. And right now, uh, the lower courts uh, in these particular jurisdictions have uh, offered a stay uh, on on this ban, but we don't, in looking at it, it doesn't seem like the administration is willing to honor those stays, or so they're trying to find loopholes, a way to still implement uh, this ban that they put into place. Uh, what about other countries' reaction to this? Does that resonate at all with Donald Trump? It doesn't seem to. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how he thinks in private, but uh, his public uh, his 
public uh, persona office, it, it doesn't faze him uh, uh, whatsoever. But I find it quite interesting as uh, Prime Minister uh, of uh, Great Britain, Theresa May, just made it. A, a visit, the first uh, foreign leader to, to visit him in the White House. And as she made it back to her country, she's receiving flack for standing next to Donald Trump. Uh, there's already been a million uh, petition, million people signing a petition yeah. uh, trying to get her to disinvite him from coming to the United Kingdom. But I don't think that phases him. As a matter of fact, nothing seems to phase him. If he were to fall out of favor, with Putin, I think that would phase him. Anything else doesn't seem to phase him. Talk a little bit about that, because, of course, he's been talking to world leaders, and we certainly saw over the weekend that he spent time talking to Putin for uh, the better part of an hour. Um, yeah. How is America supposed to uh, understand that? How, what is America supposed to take from that? Well, unfortunately, uh, sometimes... Americans don't pay a great deal of attention to foreign policy. So I think at the moment people are uh, in limbo as to how they think about it. But those who do pay attention to foreign policy think that, uh, well, it, it's a good thing to try to, you have to relate to all nations and all people. However, to, to rearrange alliances, to the extent that it seems like Trump wants to do uh, could destabilize more than the United States, could also destabilize uh, Western Europe or Europe as well. What can political parties learn from all this? I mean, this was obviously a protest vote. Uh, you know, at one point it was it was labeled as a certain segment of the population, and then we find it's people from both sides of the both sides of the fence that, that that were just fed up with the status quo. We saw it with Brexit in the UK. Um, what are the Democrats and the Republicans, or up here the conservatives and the liberals, what are politicians of the establishment learning from all of this? I mean, because at the end of the day, it seems we're more focused on what the heck Donald Trump's doing and how we hang on for this ride as opposed to how we got there. Are political parties learning anything from this? I would hope so. It just seems to me that this this uh, partisanship that we found ourselves in uh, has gone a bit too far, where compromise has become a dirty word. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with compromising, uh, point A, point B. Let's see where we can come together, where we agree and work together on issues that are mutual benefit, as opposed to running to our respective corners and offering no compromise whatsoever. I think political parties would do do well to try to educate their various constituents on the art of compromise and the necessity of compromise and not take everything to the extreme. Is that why we've become a world of extremes? It seems, it seems it's either one side or the other, the far left, the far right. There's nothing in the middle anymore. There's nothing in the middle intentionally, but I think there's middle ground perhaps uh, unintentionally where we're still functioning. Uh, Things haven't totally fallen apart. So somewhere there are avenues where we we can work together. For example, as President Obama was leaving office, he congratulated the public on his own working with him to fashion a budget, to pass a budget. Uh, you know, as we did not hear anything about government shutdown or what have you. So it is possible for parties to work together. It, but not only is it possible, I think it's an imperative, given what we've experienced and what we 
are experiencing for parties to find a way to work together. Dr. Anthony Neal has been with us, Department of Political Science, Buffalo State College. Doctor, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.